Hey, good morning, everyone. Glad to have you with us in online worship today. You know, the world can generally be divided into two kinds of people. Those who say it can't be done and those who are busy trying to do it. There are always the naysayers, like the people who called Christopher Columbus a fool, who were sure Columbus was just going to sail west right off the edge of their flat world. Yet he proved the earth was round. There were people who stood smugly on the sidelines on a beach near Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, confident that Oral and Wilbur Wright would never get their airplane off the ground. They jeered, God never meant for man to fly. And now airplanes are a common part of everyday life all around the globe. It can't be done. That same attitude applies to people as they think about God. Often people focus on what they think God can't do rather than seeing what he is doing. In our story from the Acts of the Apostles, the leaders of the temple hear about the healing of a crippled man, and their response is to shake their fists at Peter and John, shouting, God can't do that. God doesn't do that anymore. Well, do you ever think that way? Do you ever think God can't? He might help other people, but he can't help me in my situation. He might be able to help others, but for some reason I'm special. My hold is too deep. My problem's too complex. My worries, they're too big for God to handle. He's not able to help me. Better to play it safe, and I have to figure this out on my own. What you think God can or cannot do, this touches on one of your basic assumptions about life. All of us, we've already got a picture in our minds of what we think God can or cannot do. We think we know his limits. We've got God figured out, neatly packaged and kind of predictable. God in a box, if you will. And because we don't think God can do anything out of the ordinary, most of the time he doesn't. But, and here's the key point for today's message, it's important to understand that the limits of our faith are mainly self-imposed. Let me say that again. The limits of our faith are mainly self-imposed. God can. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 3.20 that God can do immensely more than we can ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. More than all we can imagine. I mean, that's pretty big. Beyond the limits of your imagination, beyond even what we are willing to ask for, God is able. And that power we now know as the Holy Spirit of God, the same spirit that Peter and John and the early church encountered at Pentecost. The same Holy Spirit we encounter today who shows us a God who can, right here and right now. The God who is doing the impossible all the time. We're the ones wearing blinders that limit our vision uh, of God, this God who moves and acts, not only in the grand events of human history, but also in the quiet recesses of the human heart. So let's look at this morning's story from Acts chapter 4 a little more closely. Remember last week in chapter 3, Peter and John, two of the people Jesus appointed as apostles or leaders of this newly launched post-resurrection church, they were on their way to pray inside the great temple of Jerusalem, but they stopped to heal a crippled beggar in the courtyard outside. When the people who witnessed this miracle crowded around, Peter boldly told them the man was healed through the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And many people were cut to the heart by his words, the work of the Holy Spirit, and they spontaneously just put their faith in Christ. Verse 4 of chapter 4 tells us another 2,000 believers were added that day, bringing the total number of believers in Jesus to over 5,000. This fantastic growth came not just through mass meetings and public preaching, 
One of the great strengths of the early church was that people who put their faith in Christ one day were leading someone else to Christ the next day. There were no bench warmers. There were no spectators. Everybody was in the game. They didn't wait to take a class or get a degree in theology or figure out the answers to all of their own questions about faith. They just told what had happened to them. They just told their own story, their story of their encounter with Christ as a living reality, not a dead martyr. That's one reason why I feel a church should not have an evangelism committee. Once you create a team and say it's their job to share faith in the community, then everyone else kind of thinks, hey, I'm off the hook. Let the professionals do it. No, we all share in the privilege of being able to talk with others about eternal things. Ken Strachan, who studied the growth of all kinds of social movements throughout history, including the early church, he came to this conclusion. It's often called the Strachan theorem. He said, the growth of any movement is in direct proportion to its success in mobilizing its total membership in the constant propagation of its beliefs. Let me say that again. The growth of any movement is in direct proportion to its success in mobilizing its total membership in the constant propagation of its beliefs. I mean, why did Marxism grow in Russia in the early 1900s? Because the Marxists were more passionate about their beliefs and were more committed to sharing the, their beliefs than the Christians were about their faith in Christ. The Russian church was just as dry as dust, had no passion for Christ, was completely in the political pocket of the czar, who then was oppressing the common people. So the door was just wide open for the Marxists to take over. Where's the passion for Christ in Christians today? That's an important question to ponder as we see the voice of the gospel often being drowned out or co-opted by many other zealous voices on both the left and the right. Where's the passion for Christ and sharing his gospel in Christians today? Well, back to our story. The temple officials were just seriously ticked off for two reasons. First, they feared this swelling of mass of people might lead to some kind of a demonstration or even a riot. And you have to remember that this time the Jews were a conquered people. Israel was under military occupation by the Romans. The Jews were given a lot of freedom by their Roman masters, but a riot would bring swift and terrible retribution from the Romans. The temple leaders were thinking, okay, let's break, break this thing up before it gets out of hand. So the temple officials, they arrest Peter and John as the ringleaders and send everybody else home. But there's a second reason why the temple leaders were ticked off that, uh, that was a little bit more insidious, I guess you say. The Sadducees were the ones who conspired to put Jesus to death. These same people were the ones who secretly and illegally arrested and tried Jesus and then coerced Pontius Pilate to give the okay for his execution. Once Jesus was dead, they thought troubles were over. The death of Jesus is still fresh in everyone's mind. It hadn't been that long ago. And there were these reports of resurrection sightings were still kind of swirling through the streets. And it bothered them deeply that they couldn't locate Jesus's corpse. But now Peter and John are making even bigger waves. They're preaching about Jesus in the Jerusalem temple. They thought they had stamped this sect of Jesus followers out, but here they go again. And just as these same officials had opposed Jesus, they were now going to be in conflict with the early church. And we're going to see this for the next few chapters. You see, as I mentioned, at this time, the followers of Jesus, they weren't called Christians. They were still considered to be a subset of Judaism. 
The apostles weren't trying to start a new, a brand new religion. They saw faith in Jesus as the fulfillment of their Jewish faith. And what we have here in Acts 4 is we have Jews talking to other Jews about a Jewish Messiah, a Jew named Jesus in Jerusalem near the temple. I hope you already know that Christianity is Jewish. The gospel is meant to be Jewish first and foremost. And we who are not ethnically Jews, we're the ones who are privileged. We're welcomed into that stream of faith. And that's one reason why I hope you know any hostility towards Jews or hate speech or violence against Jews is completely unchristian against the gospel and utterly wrong. Christianity is Jewish. We are the lucky ones to be included in God's promise of salvation that came through his chosen people, the Jews. Uh, the Apostle Paul uses a beautiful illustration of this in Romans chapter 11, verse 17, to say that we non-Jews were grafted onto the ancient people of Israel, grafted like, like onto a Jewish vine. We need to remember that our roots are Jewish, and there are too many times in church history where the church forgot that and had a blind spot of prejudice against Jews. We can't let that happen in our day. Christianity is Jewish to its core. I've also heard people say, well, we have our faith and the Jews have theirs and God accepts both. And so there's no need to share with them about Jesus. If people believe that, then they have obviously never read or understood the book of Acts. Peter and John, and in fact, all the first followers of Jesus, they're all Jews who are talking to other Jews about the necessity of faith in Jesus Christ for Jews. There aren't two different paths to salvation. There aren't many different paths that people can take. Peter makes this point crystal clear in verses 10 and 12 of our passage when he's asked to explain how this man is healed. Let me read that passage in 10. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. He quotes from Psalm 118 there. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. No other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That's the core message of the book of Acts. It permeates all of the preaching and teaching of the early church. Jesus is Lord and there, there is no other. All people, regardless of religious or ethnic heritage, we all come to God the same way through the saving work of Jesus Christ. There are not multiple pathways from which we get to pick and choose from the buffet to see which one we like the most. God invites everyone to the table of salvation. I hope that's clear. God invites everyone, everyone equally welcome. But that table is only available through the work of Christ on the cross and a personal surrender Jesus as Lord and Messiah. The Sadducees couldn't believe that. It's not possible. Why? To understand their antagonism and opposition, we need to know a little bit about first century, the, the Jewish leaders who were divided into these two main parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, what's the difference? The Pharisees were the legal and biblical scholars. They were the ones who just poured over the Old Testament, wrote volumes after volume of interpretation on every conceivable issue. They they had their own conflicts with Jesus in the Gospels, you'll remember, because of their devotion to legalism. And you see that throughout the Gospels as Jesus constantly challenged the legitimacy of all of these human-made rules that they were making. Uh, they were the lawyers. But the Sadducees were mainly the bureaucrats. They ran stuff. 
They were the ones who ran the community organizations and the neighborhoods and the government. Uh, look at it this way. If you went down to the Jersey Shore, you'd see that the Pharisees are the kind of people who would wade out into the ocean up to their knees and they'd splash around a bit, but they would never go under. And when a wave comes, they're just going to run back up onto the beach. The Sadducees, they never get into the water at all. They stay on the shore all bundled up, let the seaweed kind of collect around their ankles. But Peter and John, the followers of Jesus, they're whitewater people. They're out there in God's big ocean trying to catch the big wave. They're excited, they're exuberant over what they've discovered in this big God whom they've experienced through the power of the Holy Spirit. Their faith is in a big God and it kind of put the Sadducees to shame. The Sadducees did not believe that God could do very much. They did not believe there was a resurrection from the dead. You die, that's it. They didn't believe in miracles, didn't believe in angels, or really anything supernatural. And so they're sad, you see. Get it? Sad, you see. Because their God was a God who didn't do anything, who didn't act, who wasn't involved in the daily affairs of people. Their God was too far removed from humanity's kind of petty problems, almost deists that you might think. In their view, God has bigger issues to deal with than to be concerned about us. And so for the Sadducees, there was no personal connection with God. Their God was more of an ethical system, an ideal to live up to, a God who was limited by the laws of nature, a God who can't. So you can see how the preaching of this resurrected Jesus and healing and working miracles through Peter and John, this was a real big threat to them and their whole way of looking at the world. Paul gives a soundbite kind of picture of this kind of person in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 where he writes that they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power, a form of godliness. In other words, they like the religious trappings. They love the liturgies, the beauty of the temple, the majestic pomp of the ceremonies, but their hearts were just cold and empty. They love the religious trappings, and those became a substitute for the real God. And that's a danger even with religion today. Religion itself can become a substitute for the living God. A lot of people who love the trappings of the church, who are engaged in what we might call churchianity, they love the stained glass windows, the pipe organs, the huge cathedrals, robes and rituals and ceremonies, or it could be the feeling they get from a, an, a professional praise band or a video screen or laser shows or fog machines. People who even love going to Bible study after Bible study, fellowship group after fellowship group, but all things that are supposed to assist us in connecting with God but not to replace a real encounter with the living God. The Sadducees lived on their own energy, their own power, not on God's power released within them through the Holy Spirit. They believed in God, but in reality, they thought God was pretty insignificant. You know, surveys say that over 80% of people in America say they believe in God, but in what kind of God do they believe? Do they believe in a God who moves and acts and calls for our undivided devotion and commitment? Or do they think of God as kindly, kindly grandfather who's not quite up to speed with the real world, who's uh, you turn to only you know, when you're exhausted all other options, who's supposed to give you what you want when you want it, kind of that cosmic Santa Claus. Many people cling to this childish conception of God and that conception doesn't grow up as they get older. It, has, it kind of just remains stagnant. And so when they're hit with adult problems, this childish concept of God doesn't measure up. They think God then can't stand up to the harsher realities of life. They don't think God is big enough to handle 
their problems. It isn't because these people are particularly evil or even godless, because as J.B. Phillips writes, they have not found within their adult minds a God big enough to account for life, big enough to command their highest admiration and respect. That's from his book, Your God is Too Small. Peter and John knew differently. They knew God to be a living and active, able and willing to be involved in our very lives, a God who had changed them from the inside out, a God to whom they'd surrendered everything through Jesus Christ. And so standing before the temple leaders, Peter and John were, were technically on defense, but then they go on the attack. Peter quotes from Psalm 118, the stone rejected has now become the cornerstone. Jesus, temporary humiliation being set aside through the crucifixion is now reversed through the resurrection and a powerful demonstration of the Holy Spirit shows him to be the most important, most exalted one. You thought he was discarded at the bottom of the pile, but God has raised him up to be the pinnacle. The evidence is right before their eyes and the Sadducees choose not to believe. The facts were in God's favor, but facts are not enough. A person can witness a genuine miracle and still not put their faith in God's hands. Reason would tell you to believe in Christ, but issues of faith are not usually solely rational. People can always find some other way to explain things, and we're often confused about why people won't accept the truth if it's clearly presented to them. Faith never comes through merely a rational argument. It is much deeper than that. Faith in Christ always strikes at the core of our personalities, to our deep need for self-protection, to our will, our will and the giving up of control to a God that we can't control. That's scary for most people, for the Sadducees, but also for us. Is our God too small? Where are we limiting God in our own lives or in our church? Where have we said God can't? or God won't, or God isn't able? Are we willing to take our blinders off and see what our big God can really do? Remember the verse I read from Ephesians 3.20, God can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. God can do more than we can ask, but first we need to imagine to let our thoughts go in new directions, to dream of what God might do. An historic church like ours, we should always celebrate the past, but we also always need to dream about the future. What do you think God wants to do in and through us in the future? Looking beyond the election because somebody will win and somebody will lose, but life is gonna go on. Looking beyond the COVID crisis, what does God have in store for you and for this church? It's a time to think big because we have a big God. It's a time to throw off the constraints of the past and let God really be God. So during this time of quarantine and political unrest, it's been hard to dream big. We can feel isolated, kind of hemmed in. We seem to live all bundled up, all tied up in knots and kind of afraid to really let God loose. So we keep him on a short leash. As we look to the future, to this coming week, to the next few months, to the next decade, Let's really believe that God has great things in store for this church. Let's get excited about what God can do. Let's pray and ask God's Holy Spirit to unleash the power of God in our lives, in our families, and in our church. How big is your God? Where in your life are you saying God can't? Where have you constructed these self-imposed limits on what God can or cannot do? Where is your God too small? 
Where do you say, I'm beyond God's help? Because as long as you think you are, you are. Let's believe God has great things in store for us and for his church. Will there be opposition? Yes. Will there be problems? Absolutely. So what do we do? First, we begin to pray. Lord, where am I limiting you? Where have I made you small and powerless? Then ask, Lord, give me a dream. Increase my godly imagination. Increase my godly imagination and see what comes to mind. Ask God to give you a bigger, bigger vision of himself. Ask him to give you one dream for yourself and one dream for your church and put it down on paper. Writing things out makes them much more real. There are lots of dreamers out there who never accomplish anything. All they do is dream, but put your dreams on paper and you have a much better chance of seeing them come true. And then continue to pray and ask for the courage and the self-discipline to make those dreams happen through the power that works in you, Christ Jesus. Make the dream big enough to inspire you. Someone once said, make no small plans. Dream no small dreams, for they don't have the power to ignite your soul. Our dreams need to be bold and expansive because we serve a God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ever ask or imagine. We serve a big God. So let's dream and ask and work. Let's cooperate with the Holy Spirit who is already at work all around us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a big God who is far beyond the limits of our imagination, Lord. And I know it's risky for us to pray that kind of prayer and to believe that kind of dream, Lord, but we want to be people who walk in harmony with what we read in the pages of Scripture, Lord. And so they were able to dream big about you and to see you at work in their lives in very uh, remarkable ways, Lord. We want your church to be that alive today. We don't want your church to go be dry and dusty and go into the pages of history somehow. This is the time for your church to rise and be alive, Lord. And so we pray that that would start with us individually, start with us in whatever small groups we might be involved with, Lord, and start with us in our worship and our service to each other and on outwards to our community, Lord. So inspire us this week. Help us to believe in a big God and to look for you at work in our lives. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.